0: I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. Well, g'day, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. And I so hope many of you got to listen to episode one, Well, we had uh, Sam Katari on as our guest. Sam's been a serial founder over multiple years and in multiple industries, and it was a fascinating interview. So much to learn from Sam. Big contrast for today, though. Today we have one of the most experienced and successful leaders that I have known in a long time. So I'm using long established because I think that's kind of like a nice way of saying. Some people sort of say uh, those of us that have been leaders for a long time are um, old warhorses or other words that are perhaps are a little less endearing. Certainly carry lots of battle scars, but more importantly, lots of fantastic uh, shares to tell in the form of stories. And my guest today is Dane Hudson, so Dane, yeah, very seasoned international leader, and these days, like me, Dane provides coaching and mentoring, advisory services to CEOs and founders, and and so on through his the company that he founded, which is um, Impactful Leadership Consulting. And uh, in the last couple of years, Dane's actually mentored and advised over sixty. Uh, founders and, and CEOs who get to benefit from Dane's experience. And talking of experience, Dane's held a range of key exec roles around the world, including leading the finance overall function for Yum! Restaurants, owners of uh, some brands that I think we probably know pretty well, KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut and the like. Lots of fantastic uh, food products there. Dane was CEO of Australian Vintage, one of Australia's largest wine companies. So he's combining the wine and the food. And he was regional CEO of ISS Asia Pacific, which is one of the world's largest service providers with um, responsibility for over 200,000 employees, which is a pretty scary number if you think about it. In this episode, I'll be exploring some of Dane's uh, most interesting stories of his leadership career. And we start back at the very beginning. And you know, I'll I'll be asking Dane about how he got into his first leadership role and how he learned some very hard lessons as an extremely young. And uh, a totally raw leader who was suddenly capitulated, <laughs> or captaining a what I I guess was really a failing business, and uh, talk about uh, school of hard knocks in that space. And I'll also be asking Dane about some of the challenges he faced when he found out that an employee was stealing from the business. Pretty difficult stuff, and no perfect answers there. And also, I know that Dane once had an experience where. Even as a very senior experienced leader, he was put in a situation that he had to fire someone who was also quite a senior leader reporting to him and also someone who had become a friend. So, we're going to explore that incredibly difficult space. So, with that, I very much look forward to saying, welcome, Dane. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for the invitation. So, Dane, you've had an amazing journey in leadership, but I wanted to start off and, and ask you to kind of think back to the very first role that you had leadership responsibility. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, I was um, extremely lucky. There's always a bit of fate and luck in life, and I was very lucky first of all. I did chemical engineering at at City University. I did uh, reasonably well in that and uh, came out and I was interviewing, and I got a role as a trainee graduate with VisiBoard. So VisiBoard obviously still exists now, it's an amazing uh, packaging company and they're doing pretty special things in in the US. But I joined uh, back in 1983 and Richard Pratt was the owner and he uh, was one of Australia's billionaires at the time and there weren't many billionaires at the time. So I started with a trainee program, and after three months, they didn't know what to do with me. There was no real program. So suddenly at the age of 22, I was the general manager of a $5 million business that was losing $20,000 a month, and Richard said, you're the general manager reporting through to me. So at 22, I was running a $5 million business with 100 staff, and it was losing money, and he basically said, fix it.
0: Well, i got to say, Dane, I've asked a lot of people to tell us about their first role in leadership, and this one is unique by far. That is, that is induction by fire, right? So when you heard this, do you remember kind of what first words kind of went through your mind?
1: <laughs> I was at the age where I, just, I felt pretty immortal, so so I thought, okay, I can do this, and and clearly I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> But Dick, Richard Pratt, gave me a couple of mentors who were senior people, and they helped me on the journey, you know, creating a, a daily P&L, as an example, because I did engineering. I didn't do commerce or any, anything like that. So how to create a daily p how to think about operational planning, how to think about cost leaves like overtime, wastage, all these things. I also, every Friday morning from 8am till 10am, we had general management meetings. So it would be Richard and then his five general managers in New South Wales. And uh, I would sit at the table uh, next to Richard and then everyone else was sitting around the table and they were all at least double my age. And so just learning from them around the table was a a fantastic journey. But it was tough. I got up at... 4 30 in the morning, every morning. I lived in Paddington. I rented a house in Paddington. I drove out to Liverpool every morning at at 5 a.m. And in those days, the roads weren't as good. It would take at least an hour to get out to Liverpool. I would open the factory door at at 6 a.m. in the morning, and then I would lock the factory up at uh, six o'clock at night. So, and I did that for three years and that was tough. All my friends were going out partying during the week and I going, no, I need to get up at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it really was the school of hard knocks, right? But amazing, amazing life experience to, to actually be a experienced leadership at that age running a business, taking responsibility for a PL, and l taking responsibility for people. This was a factory floor with, you know, band saws. You know, a band saw is a saw that comes down and you push paper through it and, and all these other cutting machines. And, you know, we had people lose you know, fingers while I was there. I mean, this is – I learned a lot about health and safety and what what not to do. So really, some amazing life experiences as well working with a lot of these these people in the factory
0: yeah it's fascinating. You talk about the, the safety pieces. you know so many of us in leadership, we worry about numbers, and that's often all we actually have to worry about. but when you've actually got people in their lives and their livelihoods and all of those sorts of things and, and, and health related issues it's, it adds another whole level of not just complexity, but responsibility, right?
1: Absolutely. So each of these people in the the factory, I said, we're out in Liverpool, every one of them would have two or three jobs. Mm. So they might work for me from 6 a.m. till 2 p.m., and then they'll go and do something else for four hours and then maybe they also clean at night. So Mm. it's unbelievable what a lot of these dedicated people did to support their families, to support their kids, to try to get their kids to a better position. So I learn a lot about the community of a factory as well.
0: Yeah, and it, it kind of brings up also I think something that people often, when they haven't been in a position of ultimate authority, don't really understand. But, you know, we, we're not just, again, we're not just banging out numbers, but we're actually responsible for making sure that businesses are successful to ensure ongoing and stable employment for people that desperately need it and again as a lot of people who listen to to this podcast are founders and people who are kind of like finding their way in their leadership journey themselves and and i think it's something that rests heavily on people when they suddenly realize gosh you know they've got the wage earning responsibility of a whole bunch of people to look after here as well
1: absolutely and that was without a doubt one of the things that I took away and there's a great quote I think it's I think from Sam Walton who started Walmart and it's it was you know the more you share you know the more they care so you do that with your staff if you show that you actually care about them they're going to actually care about you and, and hopefully care about the business as well. So your workforce aren't necessarily
0: your best friends, but you need to show that you care about them. Yeah, it's a great lesson. Dane, the topic we want to get into today gets back to this concept of hard yards in leadership. So I'm, I'm going to get you to keep in your early days there of your leadership journey and, and ask if something springs to mind as kind of like one of the first specific sort of challenges that hit you that really kind of rocked your boat as a leader? And perhaps you could share that with our listeners. Yeah, I've got a ton of them. So let me let me start off with with
1: the first one when I was the general manager of this small um, packaging company. So what happened was I obviously also approved the payroll and overtime and all those things. And my foreman I can remember. I still remember his name. I'm not going to say it on the podcast. But my foreman, I noticed, was getting paid a lot, and it didn't seem to ring true with what I was seeing in the factory. There was him and the and the forklift driver. And so, actually, what I did is then I he also opened up the factory on on days that I wasn't there. So I actually parked across the road and just waited and watch for him to arrive and he didn't arrive and the forklift driver arrived opened the factory up which is fine and then the foreman arrived half an hour later i then went in and checked the pay slips and the uh, forklift driver had logged them both on at the same time oops and i did this over a couple of weeks and i noticed that both of them were actually cheating the system and logging each other on when the other wasn't there. So they're basically cheating the system. So I then being young, I didn't really know how I should do it, I was furious. Um, so I spoke to one of my mentors and they said, this is a great opportunity for you to bond and you know reestablish a relationship because the foreman and I weren't great friends. He thought I was a young whippersnipper, which I was. They said, don't fire him, use this as a lever to build a relationship. And I did that, and it was an unmitigated disaster. He (laughs) disliked me even more. Oh, no. And it showed complete weakness. Here he was being a crook, and I should have fired him. I should have fired him. And I had all the evidence to fire him, and uh, I let him off the hook. And that was the wrong thing to do. And so that's one of my learnings is, When someone has actually done something that is effectively illegal, there's no grayness to it. You have to dismiss them. It sets the standard going forward, and it shows potentially shows weakness, but it's just the wrong thing to do. So that was a big one for me, and I really beat myself up over that, that. but I deferred to someone whose judgment I trusted, and in the end I helped make the decision, but it was the wrong decision. So that was actually quite a great learning experience that I took away, but it was poor judgment at the time.
0: And Dan, you, you mentioned you beat yourself up over it. And I know, you know, we both often work with, with founders and, and new leaders. And, and, you know, I hear that phrase so often, you know, people kind of really give themselves a hard time for the, the mistakes that they make. So, you know, one of the great things is people hearing from someone like you about exactly that. But I, I want to just kind of stay in that space for a moment. Is that something you've learned to do differently? Like when you realize you've made a mistake, because we still do, right? Have you learned to do that differently or not do that? or How do you deal with that tendency to want to beat yourself up when I made a mistake now?
1: It's very interesting because I, I say to, to my amazing wife often is, we are where we are because I am what I am. And I am extremely competitive. I have very high standards. I can be pretty self-critical. So all that does drive me. With that said, as a leader, you can't dwell on bad decisions or mistakes that you make in the workforce too much because I make three, four, five mistakes a day. You you are making decisions as a leader every minute of every day People rarely walk into your office or rarely call you or do a Zoom call and don't expect you to make a decision. So you're making decisions all the time. So you have to accept sometimes I'm going to make decisions because I don't have all the data or my judgment was clouded or whatever it is. And you're going to make decisions that are wrong. So you actually have to accept that and move on Now, it's always important to also reflect on some of those bad decisions, say, okay, what did I learn from that? How will I be better going forward? That's very important, but it's a recipe for disaster if you beat yourself up over every wrong decision you make in business because you will make a lot.
0: Great words of wisdom. And, yeah, I long for the day when I get to the end of the day and go, I didn't make a mistake today. I don't think that day has yet dawned. Staying with the story that you shared with us, so the mistake was not firing that guy because he'd done something so overtly wrong. So, have you been in that situation since, and what have you done in those situations since?
1: (laughs) Well, you've got a background similar to mine, Wayne, in terms of leading multinationals and and countries, etc. There is uh, unfortunately Corruption, legal activities, let's put it that way, fraud in business every day, unfortunately. Now, we can do everything we can, but I've got a huge belief in people, and 99.9% of the time, I trust people and think they'd make the right decisions. But there are a very small minority that will also try to take advantage. So I've got hundreds of examples over my career where people have stolen cash taken advantage of situations, maybe stolen inventory or done something. So there are a lot of situations that I've come across in my career. And since that time, I, I'm a lot firmer on this was categorically wrong. It's a, a breach of our, our rules. We need to make a decision on it. Interestingly, in my last role, I, I worked for a company and I was running their Asia-Pacific business and we had some issues in one of our countries and that country particularly had a tendency previously to, how do I say, encourage customers to sign contracts with us. And in some countries that is the norm. Yes. But for European-based or American-based or Australian-based companies, that is not the norm. That is fraudulent. And uh, I had to fire the country manager and his COO. And that was immensely difficult because he was actually a great friend. Wow. And he basically said, Dane, we are so, so much better than we used to be. (laughs) But he said, this is how we do business in this country.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that was really, actually, that was quite distressing. I really did not want to fire him, but I knew we had to.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess just for clarification, if people are kind of like listening to this going, you said encourage. I think what you're referring to here is encouraging more than just verbal encouraging. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great example that you bring out. And, you know, you're talking now about someone who, you know, in your words, you you actually become friends with this guy. So, share with us. How did you feel as you kind of built up to that conversation?
1: Well, firstly, I'd just been promoted to the regional CEO role, and I was responsible for around two hundred thousand people in the region. So, really big, big business, and uh, you know, I knew the company well. I've been there for five years previously, but big Asia Pacific role, and it was this all happened in my first six months in the role. So. Again, this is a, a gentleman that had run the business in that country for a number of years. We'd actually bought the business from him, and he had done a outstanding job running that that business, and the compliance in the country was getting better and better and better. And That's the thing. You need to be realistic when you're working in some of these countries, and you would know this, Wayne, is getting to 100% compliance isn't a switch in these countries. It's it's not something you can achieve overnight. So it's a journey and you say we've got a number of things we're trying to achieve and it might be some greyness in terms of how the government expects you to pay uh, overtime or certain government subsidies you need to pay, et cetera. So there's a difference between how people do business in a country versus what maybe the government specifically says. So there's, there is some grayness there. So it's a journey to move countries to 100% compliance. And so this was potentially one of those arguable areas or debatable areas. Yep. We yep. were moving to 100% com- compliance. It was, it was one client where previously this might have happened to many clients with many of our, all our clients this was one particular client that we mm, uh, identified mm. so, so it wasn't endemic and it was significantly reduced from what it was so again the question was is this bad enough to dismiss this guy over yeah. and this was not an easy country to replace the person and in the end I ended up going into that country and running it for a year as well as doing my regional role Wow. we couldn't find a replacement. It was one of those very tough decisions because I could have argued that let's give a strong reprimand and move on. But I suppose thinking back to my life experience, my first time when I let someone off the hook, how that played out, we decided, you know, with the global headquarters, that, that we needed to dismiss him. It got back down to the, the, the front page of the paper test which is if this ended up on the front page of the paper, yep. could we really explain it
0: and rationalise it? And the answer's no. That's a great lesson for, for folks listening and a test that, that I've had sort of put to me many times. And when you stare that down, you usually make the right decision. It's a harder decision. I want to stay in the same space, Dane, because obviously one of the things that we're always thinking about, and you know, all leaders when you're staring at these sorts of decisions, one of the things you're thinking about is the person themselves. And the other thing you're thinking about is the extent to which other people in the organisation, A, know that thing is going on, and B, will respond to either it continuing to be allowed to go on or the strong message of this is the decision we've taken and as a result, therefore. Perspective on that? Yeah, so
1: when you make those hard decisions for Alignment with your values and alignment with laws and, and government compliance, all those things. The temptation is to sweep it under the carpet and go, you know, we really thank you know, so-and-so, they've done a great job. They've decided to pursue personal interests. That's the cop-out. The right thing to do is to say so-and-so has been uh, an amazing leader over a period of time and we appreciate that. However, they were involved in some activities that put the company into disrepute. They, They were involved in bribing customers. They're involved in doing certain things. So you need to make it clear to the organization that this person is being dismissed for lack of compliance. And that's not something people like putting in a newsletter. So you need to think about how to phrase that, but you also need to to communicate it verbally. So one of the things that we do whenever we go through this process is, and it happens, unfortunately, reasonably frequently in business, is that if I'm the CEO, I will have a town hall with as many people as I can and explain the situation as clearly as I can. And then I would also expect my direct reports to explain it as clearly as they can to their direct reports, et cetera. So we want this message to go far and wide that we will not accept non-compliance.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, when we talk about, you know, hard yards, I think this is some of the hardest yards of of them all. And, you know, I think for me there's super strong lessons for everyone listening here. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've always been reminded of is that when you make a decision like this and then you plan your communication, the communication is for the good of the future of the organisation and everyone who is part of the future of that organisation. I think if you have that in your mind and you know that you made the decision for the right reasons for the good of the organisation and for the sustained employment of all of those people, then you need to build that into the communication. And it's, it's darn hard and getting into those town halls and whatever else um, standing up in front of people, especially when that person was popular and it's often the case and it's the, the example you're talking about it was this guy's company, which makes it all the harder. But I guess also when you kind of take a deep breath and really hold the high ground, ultimately you know that you're not necessarily going to be liked for the decision but what we will always hope is that we will be respected for the decision. Correct. Yep, 100% agree. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now, back to the show. All right, Dane, let's jump into a little time machine here because we've been in the early days of, of your leadership career, and let's zoom forward to you know maybe throw in another d- decade or two, not wanting to give away our age here, but in a different phase of, of your career as a more experienced leader, you have another instance you can share with us of Something that sort of came along and really kind of challenged you as a leader.
1: This one probably tops the, tops the poll. I had a, a wonderful career at, at uh, Young Brands, which is the uh, the founder of uh, or the owner of KFC, Pizza, Tucker Bell. I worked there for twelve years in Australia, South Africa, and the US, and then my wife and I decided we wanted our kids to grow up in Australia and uh, not. Uh, go to university in the U.S. We didn't want to leave our kids discarded around the planet. So we uh, decided to come back to Australia and I got offered the role to join mcguigan Simmons, which is a wine company. It was public listed. David Clark was the uh, the chairman at the time from Macquarie Bank. So I joined that company and I joined it David said, we were about to buy two or three of our competitors. We would have been the largest wine company in the world. I was just—I was the right person to come in to run this company. He wanted something that was seasoned, a lot of FMCG experience. So, yeah, very interesting role. And we were in the ASX 200. So that actually got me quite excited. Unfortunately, I'm a misunderstanding in what dire straits the wine industry was. Oh. And so I joined in the worst time of the the wine industry's history. We had a global oversupply and Australian oversupply. The company had far too much private label. We made about 160 million litres of wine a year. We only had a home for about 30 million of it. So we had to sell private label and we had some great clients. But unfortunately, private label and bulk wine, you become a price taker and Mm. an (laughs) oversupplied market. And then we went from an oversupplied market to the worst drought in Australia's history where water costs were monstrously expensive. And So basically the the share price went from $6 to $3 in the six months before I joined, and then over the insuring 18 months it went from $3 to (laughs) $0.11. No, that's horrific. So – I think it's Warren Buffett, any bad industry can kill a competent CEO. Yes. I'd love to put myself in that bracket because (laughs) we just got destroyed and people didn't think we'd survive. Um, I mean all our competitors, Fosters who owned Penfolds and all those wine brands, their valuation went down by billions of dollars everyone's valuation went down by a monstrous amount of money four out of my five biggest bulk wine competitors went broke everyone's betting we would go broke every day was a knife fight it was the toughest time of my career my wife would say she didn't know how i'd get out of bed every morning and go in to to do my best to keep the company going but i had a great leadership team we had amazing people in the business and that's what kept me going passionate about, supporting my team. And winemakers and people who work in vineyards are passionate people. They love the company. They love the product. They love what they did. So I felt a tremendous obligation to stay there and help the company through. So, and we did. We did survive. By the time I left, we'd got got it from 11 cents back up to 40 cents. I looked the other day, 15 years later, 13 years later, it's now 60 cents it's become it become irrelevant in the marketplace. And that's because it was always bulk wine and private label wine is not a place to be successful. The successful wine brands will be the you know, treasury wine estates, the family companies that are in it for generations and generations that have home for their grapes, home for their wine in in, in grape brands. And that's what we did. We focused on building brands and we did that. We at least tripled our our branded business while I was there. We sold down and exited vineyards. We closed and sold wineries. We completely, we got the debt level down to the lowest in uh, 10 years. So we turned the company around, but it, it still had too much wine that it could utilize in a branded business. So that was immensely difficult,
0: immensely difficult. And, Dane, as you look back, you know, because I and listeners, as we, hear, as we hear the story, it's kind of like a, a huge amount of things condensed into a small amount of time. But if you kind of look back kind of to you sitting behind the, you know, the big desk just on a day-by-day basis, can you think back to how you decided where you wanted your priorities to be and the sorts of little decisions that you made that ended up contributing to being able to keep the business afloat?
1: Yeah, yeah. so look, I've been very fortunate in my career. I I spent six years with Booz Allen Hamilton Consulting. I've had wonderful roles, great leaders I learned from, uh, young brands. I had some great mentors and learned a lot. So coming into the business, I I knew I had a good strategic mind, and so I was pretty sure about what we needed to do to save the business and fix the business. Mm. One of the challenges in the wine industry is something like 80% of your cost structure is out of your control. And grapes are a commodity price and you've got oversupply, you've got weather, you've got disease, you've got supplier consolidation. So there's a lot of things that are out of your control. So what you need to do is focus on those things that you can control. So what can we control? We needed to grow our branded business. That was the highest margin business. That was... Every 100 litres of wine we can move from bulk to, and we made about 150 million litres of wine, but every million litres we can move from bulk into branded was a phenomenal step. So we focused a huge amount on growing our our branded business, number one. Secondly, we had to reduce our infrastructure costs, and that was wineries, vineyards, anything we could do that could structurally change our costs, and we did that. And the third thing was professionalising and upgrading the quality of the team, that my leadership team, particularly, but you know our sales team growing that out, et cetera. And uh, you know we were successful in each of those areas, and as a consequence we were able to pay down debt, we were able to reduce our you know wine excess, et cetera. But focus on those things you can control. That's a key. that i I would say to people and i also just a little bit of career learning is Mm. when you do make decisions about what startup you want to join what startup you want to create what company you want to join have a look at the business and think about their revenue line and their cost line how much of that do they really control versus not controlling like commodity prices as an example you want to join companies where where 90% of the business is in your control, that's really important. And that wasn't the case that I found.
0: Yeah, they're great lessons, Dean. And, you know, just pull some different pieces out from that. And and the first you've just re-emphasized, the focus on what you can control. And, you know, we both on a daily basis deal with, you know, founders and, and, and leaders of business. And so often people get really burdened by ultimately things that they can't control. And I think it's a wonderful, matured discipline that, we will always encourage people to work on getting good at because you can't control the weather, you can't control, you made a whole list of things in that business and 80% is a, a wild amount. I've never been in a business that, that has, has the number that high. But the simple fact is staring at all of those things isn't going to do you any good, right? That's a mental discipline, I guess, more than anything else, right? Absolutely. And the other
1: thing that I, I would suggest is a, a learning for people or a, a filter when they're looking at businesses, think about the EBITDA margin at the end of the day. Often leaders that can run businesses with EBITDA margins of fifteen to twenty percent can't run businesses with EBITDA margins of five percent, so it's a very different mentality moving from for me anyway, I'd say from the fast food industry to the wine industry, so that was probably something that I and the wine industry can have better margins, but not so much when I was there. But then when I moved in the facility services industry, that had 4% margin. So you've got to think about what's your expertise and because it is a different mindset. And so when you're recruiting people, are they coming from a low-margin business or are they coming from a high-margin business? If they are coming from a high-margin business, will they actually be able to operate with the intensity that they need in the low-margin business?
0: You know, that's a great takeout for, you know, especially founders listening to this podcast who are going through different phases of growth in their business and Many times they kind of go, okay, I, n- I need to go out and get, you know, a new sales leader, a new marketing leader, whatever it might be, who's going to kind of help us you know grow to that next step. And so they look for people who've been in bigger businesses. But one of the things that I think they'll often miss is that whole margin piece. You know, what sort of a margin business did someone come from? Because the simple fact is the, you know, as you've been describing, the narrower your margin in which you play, the more, I guess, focused and precise you need to be about the decisions you make, about everything that involves spend. And it's hard to change someone who's been in a high-margin business where you can kind of throw it around and see what sticks and then suddenly find yourself in a in a much lower-margin business where you don't have that luxury. So I think that's a great learn for our, for our listeners. Another thing, Dana, I just wanted to pick up on is you talked about um, – Looking for ways that you could reduce some of your infrastructure burden, and you know, I guess that also may involves making some pretty hard decisions because there's sell-offs and close downs and and those sorts of things. And I guess you know those in themselves are often really hard decisions to make. But you know that if you don't make that decision, you make a soft decision there, and you the the potential is a whole ship sinks. Right? You want to speak to that?
1: Yeah. So when you look at Businesses with, with high infrastructure costs. So the wine industry is a, a good example. With We were one of the largest owners of vineyards and managers of vineyards in Australia. We also had about eight wineries. And so the very, very high cost and some dedicated people that worked there. And that was, to your point, that was probably one of the biggest – difficulties in exiting some of those assets. You know, we have amazingly passionate people that may have worked in that winery for 10 years, people that worked on that vineyard and cared about it from it being built you know, 5, 10 years ago. So you need to disconnect your feeling and responsibility for the people versus the ultimate responsibility to the company's success and sustainability. And so when you do make these decisions, that's when you've also you've actually got to be extremely respectful of the people. So you take them out of the equation when you're making the decision to actually sell it or close it or exit it. But when you've made that decision that you are going to exit, you think, okay, how can I be extremely respectful to those people going forward? And that could be with redundancy payments that are well beyond what the government requires. That could be within extending their notice period. It could be trying to place them in the business or have the existing, the new buyer take on those people, et cetera. So that's a really important part because those people down the track will either speak, maybe they'll speak poorly of the decision to sell the winery, but hopefully they'll speak positively about the, the way the company actually treated them. And that's an important part. You want your alumni, the ones where they choose to leave or the ones you you actually encourage to leave, you actually want them to speak relatively highly of the company going forward. And that's the way you are able to continue to recruit people.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a great separation that you made there between someone agreeing with the decision and, you know, let's face it, the vast majority of times that we have to say to someone, you know, you don't have a future at this organisation anymore. They're rarely going to thank you at that moment. But if they can respect the way in which it was done and respect the way that they were looked after, then you maximise the likelihood that that you are creating at least a relatively positive alumni. And that's, uh, you know, that's a, another in the, in the learning box. And Dane, the other thing that you mentioned when you're kind of talking through kind of like that big basket of things that you kind of took on is, as, as,
1: you know, how do
0: I keep this this organization afloat the other thing you talked about was making not just people decisions in reduction but making sure that you had you know the right people in the organization with the skills and attitudes that you need in order to steer the organization through which is a huge piece in itself tell us about that so I might actually move on away
1: from from the wine industry to my role in facility services so I worked for a company called ISS, um, Global Facility Services Company out of Denmark. And I was there. I ran the business in Australia and then then up, up in Asia. And same sort of thing that when you come in as a new CEO, you need to evaluate the leadership team that's in place. Okay. And one of the lenses that often trip us up is that we maybe look for homogeneity, as opposed to diversity. And I know we say we all want diversity, but sometimes looking around a table and, and seeing people that are well-educated, have MBAs, that are, are really smart, have got a lot of diverse experience, that you know, good gender basis, et cetera, that's fantastic. But actually, sometimes you've got to, to look at around the table and say, that person is so different to me, but they've worked in this industry for 20 years. And they've got amazing industry experience. And although they may not operate the same way I operate, they've got amazing depth of industry experience. And at times in my career, I've probably underestimated that because I've been such a nimble leader myself. I've been a CEO in five different industries. So I just think it's, you know, you can evolve and grow and do it. But actually... That is a bit unique. There's not a lot of people that up that can be nimble and swap industries, and so you do need those industry experts within your leadership team and definitely within the organisation, and that's absolutely critical. But because they don't necessarily think like you or respond like you you or me who have different experiences, they can actually be a bit frustrating at times. But they have this wonderful industry expertise that's so necessary yeah and sometimes my career I've underestimated
0: that to my detriment that's a great reflection Dane and you know a great one again for for folks listening because I think um, we're all naturally attracted to many of the same sorts of things and it's hard not to kind of have a sense in our minds of leaders look like this and people who fit in my organization look like this so we get elements of the as you were saying elements of the the diversity piece, right, with, you know, gender and religion and perhaps race and a few other different sorts of things, but we neglect that diversity is also background and style. And a, a really powerful team actually has a mix of different styles and they feed off each other rather than competing with each other. And that's not easy to get either, is it? No, it's not. And the other thing along the lines of building your
1: leadership team is – It takes years so a lot of people I work with you know they're go. my leadership team isn't right you know Dane how long does it take to get your leadership team right and I'll say oh probably three years and their face just drops (laughs) 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 three years I can't wait three years but it does it takes years you will make hiring decisions at their senior level because people at that senior level interview well. Uh, you've got to deeply reference check them, but even that sometimes goes astray. So, And sometimes you'll promote someone in the organisation. And I've done this many times that I thought, I'm not sure if they're ready. I'm not sure if they're the right person, but I want to get closer to them. And the easiest thing to do is promote them to the leadership team and reporting directly to me. And they don't all always work out. So when they don't work out, you've got to make the decision quickly. Yeah. Three to six months. We all have this bias to loyalty, but if the person's not working out, you've got to make the decision quickly. But my point is
0: it takes years to get a great leadership team in place. Yeah. And I'll also just pull out something that you just mentioned because, again, it's something that I hear from founders and leaders so often when we're kind of talking to them is um, back in the beat myself up sort of thing. You know, I employed a new head of marketing and it didn't work out. I employed a new head of sales and it didn't work out, I knew whatever it might be. And then it's like, what am I doing wrong in my people selection? You know, am I just no good at this? And you hit on the head. I think, Dane, that, that first of all, you know, we've been doing this for decades and, and I always say, gosh, you know, how long have you got? Because I'll start telling you about the, the list of, you know, senior leadership appointments that I've got wrong. But part of the reason is people who are applying for those sorts of jobs get good At the selection process and you can spend a lot of time in interviews and various other sorts of things but it's completely different to having six months of you know sitting side by side and working together right
1: yeah exactly so a few little tricks that i have or approaches is you've got to see the person in three different venues or spaces so first time they come into your office and you have an interview with them and 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 You get them down the track. Next time maybe you have a a coffee with them in a coffee shop somewhere or go for a walk along in the park or beach or walk around the office, et cetera. Then the last one might be a a dinner and uh, see how they perform over dinner. Do they drink too much, as an example, and how how do they handle a conversation over dinner? Do they drop their guard and start sharing things that they hadn't previously? And every one of those is an interview process. And one of the things I've done is have some dinners where I've actually invited their spouse along and and my wife along. And then afterwards we, we talk about, so, honey, what do you think of them? Look at them in, in different spaces, number one.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then even before that, tear their resume apart, look for certain things in their resume that don't make sense. You know, the year off when they really do doesn't seem like they've done much. The changing jobs... And zero internal promotions. (coughs) That's a huge one for me. And uh, then reference checking, find a way to to talk to people whose names they don't give
0: you. Great lessons. Thank you, Dane. The clock is starting to work against us, so I'm going to throw my fun little wrapping up question. So this one's for fun, Dane. So imagine I give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush and you have the opportunity to write some words on the wall opposite where you most commonly work. So when you look up, you see those words. What are you going to write?
1: Probably my two values in terms of how I operate. And one, and you've heard me talk about this, is shadow of the leader. That as a leader, you are watched constantly. And as a leader, you have this positional power. So a good example is me in my sort of coaching role now and working with a lot of founders and and companies that I am being watched and listened to intently. So that shadow shadow of the leader piece is as important now as it was when I was a big company CEO. Indeed. And then the second one would be probably belief in people. Yeah don't do those bullet emails. Well, if someone hasn't returned my call or if someone hasn't returned my email, don't get out of get out of shape. People return my email or phone calls a lot quicker when I was a big CEO. They're, they're a little less quick in returning my emails now. So just believe in people, don't worry about it and, and, and accept it for what it is.
0: Fantastic. Hey, Dane, thanks so much for sharing. Just before we tag out, I'm sure there's people listening to this who would love to be able to track you down in your current role as your coach and mentor. So let people know where they can find you.
1: So there's there's probably three us. One is LinkedIn. So just Dane Hudson. It's easy to find. And she's was going to say you've got a picture of me now, but but you probably don't. The other one is you can email me at dane so dane at impactfulleadershipconsulting dot Sorry, it's a mouthful. I appreciate that. Or go to my website, which is www.impactfulleadershipconsulting.com, any of those ways. Uh, I love working with CEOs and founders. I'm very privileged to do this, but uh, I'm always excited to talk to to more people and learn from them. It's the reverse mentoring piece. Learn about them as leaders. Learn about their businesses. But uh, thank you, Wayne, for this discussion. It's been really
0: interesting. And thank you for coming along on the show. I think... um you know, Dane, folks like yourself, you have an extraordinary amount of experience in leadership and, you know, any, anything that we can do that helps younger leaders, people who are earlier in their leadership journey kind of be able to kind of accelerate their journey and be able to learn from things that they haven't yet experienced by listening to people who have been there and done that. It's going to be something that people really appreciate and you've given a lot today and I know you do for all of those folks who you coach and mentor through uh, Impactful Leadership Consulting. So, yeah. Um, Fantastic what you do and great having you on the show. Thanks, Dane. Thanks, Wayne. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do and keep believing in yourself as a leader.